Here are several reasons why you should choose Tally and Twine Watch Company. Number one, we offer a two-year product warranty, so don't worry about fading or malfunctions. Number two, there's no risk to you. We offer both free shipping and free returns. Number three, the number seven represents completion and reminds you to finish what you start. Number four, why buy a lookalike watch when you can wear a true conversation piece? Number five, your satisfaction is guaranteed and we have hundreds of reviews to prove it. Number six, you can choose from our metal, leather, or canvas timepieces and we have styles for every occasion. Number seven, we offer the best features at the best value, hands down. Tally and Twine Watch Company, it's time to make your mark. Welcome to the Savage Truth Podcast. This is Pastor Roy Dockery um, checking in with another episode. And um, yeah, I am, uh, well, at the time of this recording, I'm in in Chicago uh, in a hotel across the street from the House of Blues um, and just woke up at like 2.30 in the morning uh, after having a dream of fighting the Russian in my kitchen. So not sure what that what that dream meant. Um but I'm going to interpret it as uh, as I needed to get up and fight uh, the, the white privileged power structure. Um, so that's what I woke up and did. Um, no joke. So uh, today, <laughs> the topic um, that I want to discuss is the um, is the illusion of inclusion and the, the spiritual segregation in America. So. That's, you know, so I mean, you know, I'm up in the middle of the in the middle of the night for for, you know, in a very good reason. I was in Italy for the last week, um, flew home on Sunday, got to be home for less than 10 hours and then flew to Chicago on Monday morning to speak at a technology event. Um, So I'm very much probably still jet lagged and somewhere between East Coast time and um, Italian time, but in Chicago. So. Instead of uh, sitting here and watching Netflix um, and, you know, binging on episodes at the office, I decided I'll um, jump into the next um, the next episode of the podcast since I haven't had an opportunity to record one based, you know, due to traveling. So, like I said, I want to talk about the illusion of inclusion um, and basically the, the spiritual segregation in the in the American church. Like we have to understand and just to give some context, right, like Plessy versus Ferguson was in 1896. Right. Which said that separate but equal was fine. As long as you gave access, then, you know, it wasn't discriminatory to put up a sign that said, you know, black people not allow whites only or this is the black bathroom. This is the white bathroom. This is the black section. This is the white section. Right. The at that time, like the Supreme, you know, and then, you know, we had it had to be challenged and it was basically challenged largely in the context of education and public education. Right. So then Brown versus the Board of Education in the 1950s kind of overturned that. But, you know, the the Supreme Court determined that separate but equal was a violation of the United States Constitution. Right. So organizations um, and like systems across like the functional spectrum, whether it's private industry, um, education, healthcare, um, transportation, whatever it been, right? They've been legislated to be inclusive when it comes to diversity. So you legally have to be diverse. You can't discriminate. It's not allowed. 
Right. So then that led to things like the civil rights movement. Right. We have the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission. There's um, affirmative action programs in education and in uh, the corporate sector. You know, there there are quota systems of um, and even in government contracting, you have minority requirements. But, you know, you have all these other programs that basically force racial and um, racial, religious uh, and, you know, just different ethnic um, and, and, uh, and demographic differences in most public institutions. Right. So for greater than a generation. Right. Because we're talking about from the 1950s to now. So this is even before my, my mother was born in the 60s. Um, so you know, essentially one and a half generations. Right. We have been forced legally. Um, you know, especially, I mean, and when I say forced legally, you have to be in an area where diversity and other ethnic groups exist. If you're in the middle of nowhere in Montana or Utah, Utah, where only white people exist, they're not flying black people into your community to make sure that you interact with black people. So, right, this is all in the context of, you know, you're within proximity of or you're in a community that has a representation of diversity across ethnic um, or racial groups. Right. So. Um, for more than a generation, we've been forced to socially engage um, with other groups, whether it was racial, ethnic or religious groups that are different than our own. But it's crazy because you look and I'm like, and I, and I ask myself the question, like, how is it possible that 65 years after the Supreme Court ruled um, in Brown versus the Board of Education, like that we still have a considerable segregation issue in the American church? And then the question is, why is that important? Right. Like in in school and education, we're taught facts. You know, we're given information. We're taught history. We learn uh, mathematical equations. Right. We learn about literature and the history of literature and styles of literature. Like we learn all sorts of things. Right. That that stoke our intellectual interests, that stimulate our desire to learn and to grow. Right. It creates our our literacy and our cultural literacy literacy. And it helps us deliver. It helps us like create our um, our interests. Right. And then, you know, we 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 proceed out of education and then we go um, to the workforce. Right. And then we're taught skills. We're taught um, we're taught disciplines. We're taught uh, processes. Right. We learn how to be professionals. We learn how to um, how to use our education and our and our gifts. Right. To 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 move forward um, an organizational mission or to accomplish some kind of task or goal. Right. But the significance of 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 a lack of diversity in American church is because what we're taught at church, right? But like at church, we're, we're, we're taught how to live, right? We're taught how to love. We're taught how to contextualize all of the secular and worldly ideals and ideology, right? Through the lens and through the view of our faith. So what you learn in school winds up being contextualized through your faith. What you do at work should be contextualized through your faith. The, the way that, and you know, so then the way that you interact in public, the way that you engage with policy, the way that you engage with society is all contextualized through our faith, right? So like schools and businesses and governments have become instruments of diversity because of legislation, um, right? They've driven integration and inclusion, but it doesn't appear that the vast majority of religious ent- entities and organization and institutions, right, that there's been a comp- like there's been the same comparable transition away from segregation. Right. Like this is the illusion of inclusion, right? Like the illusion of inclusion is taking down the white only sign, but not like recalibrating to understand cultural, like social or ethnic differences among different groups. 
right? The, I mean, the majority of America suffers from an invisible privilege where their preferences are assumed to be the normed and then often the right way to do things. I mean, I know I've said it in my house. I know a lot of people that say it in America, um, especially from a black perspective. But you hear the phrase white is right. Right. Because in America, like the white thing to do seems like the right thing to do. Right. So um, and it's because it's it's essentially categorized as American. Right. So the, the white way of doing things, white culture, white popular opinion seems to be the yeah, just I mean, it creates the ethos for America. Like so the cultural things that are accepted are kind of assimilated into American white culture and the things that are rejected by the by the popular white culture don't kind of make it into the tapestry of what it is we call America. Right. Like white people love Chinese food and Mexican food. So it's a popular thing. And they're not you're not necessarily flocking to to eat, you know, Kenyan or Nigerian food. So you don't really see it categorized or positioned as something that's popular. Right. Or even Jamaican food um, or as something that's popular because it's not something that's readily accepted. Um by the majority of the population and the majority of the population kind of drives that trend of what's acceptable and and essentially what's American. Right. So, you know, when you look at this and when this is transferred into the context of the American church. Right. I can see why we are still plagued with the diversity issue in the church um, that ultimately impacts our society. Right. When diversity clearly exists within the community. So, again, I'm not talking about, you know, I'm not talking about churches in areas or, you know, in, in, or demographic areas in the country where you have a lack of racial diversity. Right. But I do expect the church to reflect the communities in which they serve. Right. Like you shouldn't. I mean, the, the church body. Right. The intention of and I'm taking the opinion that. Right. The goal of the church is to be a cornerstone of the community, which means that if a church is in a community, it should represent a community. It's insane that you can have two churches in a community across the street from each other and one is 90 percent black and one is 90 percent white. That's insane. Like I see it in a town that I'm in. You got small churches everywhere. I don't live in a big I don't live in a big place. I live in Clayton, Delaware. But you see small churches all over the place. Um, but you'll, you see a small church that's almost entirely black. You see a small church that's almost entirely white. You'll see a small church that's almost entirely African. Right. You see all of this, um, this, this basically racial, you know, homogenous communities, but in the middle of a community that represents and contains all of the racial demographics that are attending these different churches, right? And some of them are different denominations. Some of them are Lutheran. Some of them are Catholic. Some of them are AME. Some of them are Baptist. Some of them are non-denominational. But at the same time, there are multiple Baptist churches that have white churches and black churches. There are multiple, you know, Methodist churches. And you got AME church that's all black. You got a traditional Methodist church that's, that's almost all white. So it's like, it's crazy, but like, you know, that that same like the, the church, in my opinion, should reflect the community right there. If there are believers in the community who who accept or who follow the Baptist denomination, why can't Baptists worship together? Right. If there are people in a community who all um, believe in Methodist doctrine, then why aren't Methodists going to church together that from a racially diverse perspective? Right. There's there's something wrong with the way that we approach religion, with the way that we look at God, the way that we, you know, the way that we're, we approach church um, from a spiritual perspective, 
if our churches are not a reflection of at least the diversity that's within the community where it exists. Right. So I'm not talking about, you know, and when you read, I've been reading a book called Divided by Faith. And it seems like every time you ask questions, um, especially to like evangelicals or um, more, more likely to evangelicals, because that's just what the research study shows. When you ask questions about racial integration, the first thing that everybody jumps to is like, well, well, you can't force people to move. Right. And like like you can't force people to move. And then, you know, people got to sell their houses and go somewhere different. Like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. So I'm going to be clear, like I'm not talking about busing people from city to city to drive, you know, integration and to drive racial diversity within churches. Right. I, I, I think that was fine when you when it comes to education, even though it put the person riding the bus at a disadvantage because they get less sleep and still have to do the same amount of time in school. But at least it opened up the opportunities and it provided resources that were available in those schools that were not available in the neighborhoods where, where black children um, were, were previously receiving their education due to underfunding. Right. But from a church context, I mean, you know, from an, from an, from an American church context, I'm talking about you drive past, you know, a black church, you drive past a white church on your way to church. And often a lot of people are going outside of their community to find a church that meets their that meets their their kind of racial preference. Right. So I know a lot of black people who live in white neighborhoods that have to drive to black neighborhoods to attend a black church. Right. I know white people who live in racially, um, you know, racially diverse and mixed neighborhoods that travel outside of that mixed neighborhood to find churches that are majority white. But the crazy thing is like this is the place where we're supposed to be learning about, you know, learning about the way to love one another, learning about our neighbor. So when you look to your left and you look to your right and, you know, and especially in black churches, this always happens. We get to ask questions to our neighbor. When you look to your neighbor, like you don't even understand the, the subconscious context of somebody saying, look to your neighbor, to your left and to your right. When you look around the church and everybody looks like you, how do you think people interpret the scripture? Love your neighbor. Just think about that. When I when I when I look at my neighbor in the context of me learning about my faith, if my neighbor always looks like me, I'm probably internalizing that. That loving my neighbor means loving my brother and sister in Christ. And my brothers and sisters of Christ in the local church context often are the same color as me. So I don't I don't know how deep I need to go into that specific thought, but I think you understand. I think most people who are listening understand what I'm getting at with that point. So I'll move on. Right. We have to understand that access does not equal inclusion. Right. Like. And, and, you know, to use a very simple example, if you think about somebody in a wheelchair, right, like when you designed your establishment, if you didn't, if you didn't, if you built the building, but you don't, and it, you know, and it's not level to the ground, you can't roll, you can't walk right into the first ground, you have some kind of egress or incline. So you have, say you have five or six steps to get into your establishment. When you built that building and you didn't build a ramp or you don't have some kind of lift, right? That 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 gives you that 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 gives somebody with a disability or someone with a wheelchair the ability to access your facility, then you didn't include them in your thought process when you designed it. Right. So when you when it comes to the design of our churches, when it comes to how we worship, when it comes to the leadership of the church, when it comes to interior design, when it comes to the decoration. Right. We have, you know, people may have removed the white only signs or the black only sections from our sanctuaries. 
But for most churches, that was it. Right. We started saying, you know what? You guys are right. You know, Supreme Court. We've been sitting here reading this book for all of these years that say we should love our neighbor, that we should love one another. Right. That we should be sacrificial, that we should do unto others as if they're the least of, of, of you know, do unto others, um, that do unto the least of these as if they were you. We've been reading all this stuff for all this time, but we didn't see it. We didn't get it. You know, we didn't really see black people as equal. We didn't really see black people as neighbors. We didn't really see black people as as brothers. We're sorry. Black people, you're welcome to come. And the silence is there for for a reason. <laughs> right. Like repentance isn't saying I'm sorry. Repentance is a change of mentality. Repentance is a change of direction. Right. It's to turn away from what you were doing and move into the another in another direction. So if what you were doing as a church was segregationist, if what you were doing as a church was not inclusive, if what you were doing as a church was not sensitive to racial diversity. To repent from it means to change the way you were doing church. It means to change the way that you looked at church. It means to change the way you looked at how the design of your church and how it should be designed to include people who are different than you, how it should be designed to include people that represent a diversity from an ethnic perspective and from a social and racial perspective, right? Like, again, when it comes to the design of our churches, right? Like, we can't just remove the picture of white Jesus and we still have a flag flying in the church that's bigger than the cross, right? Like, the preaching of the gospel did not evolve in most church, in most, in most circles, right? Most churches didn't start changing the way that they were preaching because something that you were preaching prior to, you know, segregation being made illegal, something you were preaching prior to that didn't touch on the fact that there was a fragment of humanity that was not, that were, that were not being treated as if they were made in the image of God, right? Your, your gospel didn't compel people to love their neighbor. Your gospel that you were preaching did not compel people to look at the injustices happening in their communities with people being attacked by, by dogs and Jim Crow laws where, where black people were being lynched. Like, you have to understand that 60 years ago, people left church to go watch lynchings. I mean, sorry, not 60 years ago. I mean, I don't know. You invited in Texas, maybe they were dragging black people behind trucks. But I mean, if you think about it within two generations, right, like some somebody's grandparent right now, right, could have potentially seen a lynching after church. Right. People, families used to take I've read the book White Rage and it just talks about how like families would take train trips to go see lynchings and the burnings of black bodies after church. Like something was wrong with the American psyche where it completely dehumanized African-Americans and, and black people and allowed atrocious, despicable, violent, evil things to happen to black people. At the hands of Christians, in the presence of Christians, and nobody blinked an eye. So, yeah, we can say, oh, my goodness, that was horrible. We recognize it now. But I don't really think the church started teaching. And the way that we look at people, the way that we think about diversity was completely wrong, right? All of these people are our brothers. The way that they live is is important. Their cultures are important. Their preferences are important. And we should include them in our services, right? To repent is not to say, I'm sorry. To repent means to change. And for the most part, it just doesn't seem to me like American churches changed. 
not drastically, not the way that they preach the gospel. They didn't tell people to repent from their American mentality that some people are disposable. Because that's what America clearly did, right? They disposed of Native Americans. They disposed of, of African Americans. Um, they, they just, they use people up and discard them. If that person isn't there um, and it no longer benefits your purpose, then it's okay um, to not care about their, to not care about their life, to not care about their safety, to not care about their, um, not care about their children, not care about their education, not care about their health, right? That's American. To only care about the majority, and not the people supporting the vision in the um, in the building and the foundation of the country. So it's like, you know, there's the, there's a heart change that's required for racial integration, for for true racial integration to happen, right? You 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 could you can integrate schools, but people were still spitting on black children. It, it didn't it didn't make them love black kids just because <laughs> just because you you forced some black children into a school and now they got to teach them. So, I mean, just think about the context of all the students that had to go through schools where teachers despised them. Not because of not because of their their lack of um of of, you know, educational prowess, not because of their lack of effort, not even because of anything they do, just because they were brown. Their teachers hated them cafeteria workers, like all of these people that felt like it was being forced upon them. And, and, and my, remind you, back then, the country was 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 from a from a statistical perspective, more Christian than it is now. And this was and this was angry. There were adults spitting on children to the point where you had to get National Guard people to protect them walking into church. And I think we like to forget about that. But that was in the 1950s. That wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago. Some of the people who were listening to this, your parents were around during that time. So can you imagine your great grandfather spitting on a little black child as she tried to walk into school? Because he may have done it. Your great grandmother may have done it. Doesn't seem that far away now, does it? So give us a moment. Um, we're going to pause to take a break so we can take a word from our um, from our sponsor. And then we'll be right back to the Savage Truth podcast. Me, sugar bop, honey bun. I don't mean in the several reasons why you should choose Tally and Twine Watch Company. Number one, we offer a two year product warranty. So don't worry about fading or malfunctions. Number two, there's no risk to you. We offer both free shipping and free returns. Number three. The number seven represents completion and reminds you to finish what you start. Number four, why buy a lookalike watch when you can wear a true conversation piece? Number five, your satisfaction is guaranteed and we have hundreds of reviews to prove it. Number six, you can choose from our metal, leather, or canvas timepieces and we have styles for every occasion. Number seven, we offer the best features at the best value, hands down. Tally and Twine Watch Company, it's time to make your mark. Pick up the pieces! Pick up the pieces! I hope everybody gets a chance to check out our sponsor. Tally and Twine is an amazing, um, amazing vendor. Um, currently the only watch I wear just because I, um, I like to support things and people who I feel represent things that represent me. So um, Randy Williams is the CEO of Tally and Twine, and he's a he's a great guy who has a wonderful family um, and is always um, committed to, to building the community um, 
and being Christ-like. So I appreciate him um, and the things that he does. So to get back into it, like I said, we we you know we kind of we kind of took a quick break there when we're talking about how you know that the church has to incorporate um, integration and racial diversity into the design of the church, right? Like the mission of the church didn't shift to preaching repentance of hardened hearts that turned a blind eye to the pains of racial racial segregation that we just talked about. Like even today, right in 2019, most churches avoid topics of systemic racism. Like, but they have no issue speaking on constitutional issues, obviously, right? Because, you know, we talk about the battle surrounding same-sex marriage and abortion, right? And Roe v. Wade and, you know, who should we should vote for so that we could get people into the Supreme Court, right? Like, we're, we're fighting for a change in today's morality in America, right? Because we're trying to legislate morality and want to make people make the wrong things that people do be illegal. But, but we often ignore the fact that that same court that you're angry at for for making same sex marriage illegal and for upholding Roe v. Wade, which is, you know, over 40 years old now. Right. Is that <laughs> that same Supreme Court had to legislate to include inclusion. Right. That same court that you're angry at now, people were angry at in the 1950s because they said you have to allow black children in your churches. You have to allow black people in your school. You have to sit next to black people on a bus. You have to let black people eat in your restaurant. You have to let black people into your into the same door of your hospital, right? The, the same morality that was codified by the Supreme Court and saying that by the, by the Constitution, right, the governing doctrine of America, racial segregation is illegal now. And people were angry about that. Right. But the church didn't take that angry position in America and you. Right. And so America went forth and they legislated um, addressing the tangible effects of racism. Right. They addressed institutional racism. They addressed um, like, you know, or, you know, they tried to address racial segregation in, in education. They tried to address racial segregation in public transportation and, you know, in businesses that were associated with government. So that's why you have Equal Opportunity Employment Commission and all of this other stuff. So they tried to penalize racism in tangible ways. But in my opinion, it was the responsibility of the American church after the Supreme Court set the example because the church did not do it, which is counter Christian Anyway, right, the church should have driven the movement, not the Supreme Court, um, because you can you can force people to make a tangible change to their environment. But that doesn't mean you're changing their hearts. Right. In my opinion, the government sets the guidelines and uses the sword um, to, to, to punish crime. Right. So it legislates the, the borders in which we're not supposed to cross, because when we cross those borders, we are infringing on other people's rights or causing undue harm. Right. But inside that box. Right. The way that humans, the way that humans interact, the way that we choose to engage and interact with each other. Right. As as a Christian, as a person of faith, I think those things are largely driven by our faith. Right. The things that we're taught within our family, the things that we're taught within our churches. So, you know, the government, the Supreme Court had to legislate inclusion to offset the tangible effects of racism. But the church never took on the initiative to fight the intangible effects of racism. 
right? We, we preach love our neighbor to those who live in segregated communities, right? We, we categorize our neighbors. Um, and I've even been in a church in a meeting where someone asked the question like, well, we got to love our neighbors. So we should do stuff for the community. And I had an older white gentleman that said, well, you know what? Like, you know, the way I interpret the Bible, like my neighbor is like my, you know, we got to take care of Christians first. And then after we take care of like people in our church, then we can worry about our community. But like that church was all white. Like we were literally the only black family in the church. So you're basically saying like, let's take care of white people first or not even white people, white people specifically in our church. And then we'll take care of the community after that. Right. So you're even categorizing neighbors, you know, people categorize neighbors um, as our brothers and sisters in Christ. And even a smaller subcategory of that is our brothers and sisters of Christ who are in the same denomination, (laughs) um, the, the denomination of faith that we are. Right. Which, again, limits that view to a rather homogenous racial segment, a very milky (laughs) racial segment. So we don't like define neighbor like as 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 the global human race or as our co-workers or our classmates or, you know, people we pass on a subway, people that we shop with at Walmart, people that we run into at the grocery store. Like most Christians aren't contextualizing that as their neighbor. Right. I said, you know, when you go look to your left, look to your look to your right, you know, tell your neighbor that that God will do a work in your life this week. Right. Like that person to your left and to your right normally looks like you. Or sometimes you're in the church and when you look to your left and to your right, which is often the situation for my family, those people don't look like me. Because I don't I don't go to a, I don't go to a black church. I go to a church that's that's um, majority white. So. But often a person to my right or to my left, or at least to my right, is normally my wife. So, again, I'm still looking at a black person um, and loving my neighbor, who is who is often my spouse. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just to, to you know, to illustrate the, the concept that that, you know, inclusion can be an illusion if you if inclusion stops at providing access. I remember um, my my mom's second husband, um, Jeff, he was from Knoxville, Tennessee. So. I remember us taking a trip and we were going up to to Pigeon Forge in the Tennessee mountains. And this is before the GPS days where, you know, dads used to wander around with maps and refuse to ask for directions. And at this point, we are so lost, like in the mountains of Tennessee. We don't know where we're going. I don't even think we have a map. And so, you know, it's starting to get tenuous in the car. My mom is not a my mom is not a woman to sit back and just allow a man to drift in the wrong direction. Right. She's going to speak up. So she's getting hot. And it was like, you know what? You need to pull over, ask for directions. You don't know where you're going. So, again, we are in the mountains of Tennessee, eastern Tennessee. So we don't know where anything is. We're not seeing no gas station. You know, it's a couple of gravel roads that probably lead to somebody's private property. And we come around the corner and we come across what looks to be a bar and more specifically like a biker bar. So my stepdad, who, um, who whose family is 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 culturally diverse, but very very light skin, fair skin, um, black man um, with with Native American um, with with Native American um, DNA and and culture as well, right? So the lightest of black people you probably know, like he almost looked like Vanilla Ice with a suntan. So I mean, lightest of light. Um, so not the typical threatening, you know what I mean? Brown or, or dark black, you know, dark black man. That's easy to point from afar from a distance. He could probably he could probably pass as white, could possibly get interpreted as like a Puerto Rican or something like that. So but we pull up to this place and and I vividly remember looking out the window as a kid and, you know, saw the motorcycles, which I thought were cool. But then on the building itself, there were flagpoles 
on the front of the building, and it was an American flag and a Confederate flag outside of the building. And so, you know, we're just kind of looking, and we're like, look, well, it's the only place. So my stepdad gets out the car, um, and he proceeds to walk towards the building. And I can't remember, I can't remember if I heard it. I mean, this was years ago, the 30, probably 28 years ago now. Can't remember if I heard it or if he told us when he got back in the car. But when he started walking towards the front door, there was a guy getting off his bike, a white guy getting off his bike that walked up to my stepdad and basically asked him, like, okay, hold on, where are you going? Right. And my stepdad was like, you know, I'm walking in the building. Um, you know, I'm just going to go in here and just want to ask for directions where, you know, my family, we're trying to get the Pigeon Forge and we're clearly lost. And the guy just I just remember seeing like very puzzled look on his face, like kind of turning his head to his side, to the side. And and he asked my stepdad, he was like, don't you see that flag over there? And he was pointing to the Confederate flag. And he was like, I suggest you and your family get out of here and and and, you know, because he was like, if you walk in that bar, I can't guarantee you you're going to come out. Right. So I was probably at least nine at the time. So this was probably 1991, 1992. I'm only 36 years old. For those who don't know me or who didn't listen to the first episode where I said what my age was, I'm 36 years old. I wasn't born in 1952. I'm not, you know, I'm not in my 60s. I wasn't born in, <laughs> I wasn't born that long ago. Right. So I'm 36 years old. And I had a man tell my stepdad that if you walk into this bar with a rebel, with a Confederate flag, the rebel flag, the Southern Cross, whatever you want to call it, flying next to an American flag, by the way, which I've never understood the correlation between the two, which is why I kind of have a problem when people fly either flag, because people who fly one normally fly the other one as well, which tells me there's something wrong with both of them, um, or at least the ideals behind both of them. It's. Like, it's insane to think that, you know, where this is, you know, you're 40 years, almost, you know, you're 40 years past Brown versus the Board of Education, right? Plessy versus Ferguson was shown to not work and it was passed in, in 1896. And yet we sit in 1992 with somebody telling my stepdad, like, if you walk into this place that you legally have access to, you have every right to go in there. Somebody could potentially take your life and harm your family. Right. Like <laughs> inclusion is an illusion. That building didn't have a whites only sign. It had a Confederate flag outside. But it, we were it was very clearly conveyed to us that it meant the same thing. And a lot of places today, I think, still mean the, mean the same thing. Right. If you have a business with a Confederate flag outside, I'm not patronizing you. If you just not. Right. Because I was told by people who represent that flag, who wear that flag on their on their vest of their, you know, for their motorcycle club or gang, whichever it was. Right. That that flag means that we don't want you. Right. That flag was resurrected during, you know, post Brown versus the Board of Education as a representation that we will not allow, you know, we want it to be sovereign in individual state decisions and not allow the federal government to impose integration on us. And that's what it still means to a lot of people, regardless if, you know, they oh it's history, Southern heritage, whatever. Like it was taken out by David Duke and it had nothing to do with the Civil War. It had to do with the fact that you're not going to make my state integrate Right. We're going to stand up for states rights and you ain't going to, you know, your black children aren't going to school with my white children because, yeah, I don't. Yeah. So like that's the reality of it. Right. So, yeah, access is legal. Right. There's this this is an illusion of inclusion that you can move freely about the country and do whatever you want to do. But you can't. That's just false. Even in 2019, that is false. 
When you travel between Maryland and Virginia, you got this like Dixie, this huge Dixie store. I've never seen a line of black people waiting to get into the store with the giant Confederate flag flying over the highway. I just don't. They just go to the gas station across the street because that flag tells me that you don't really you don't really want me there. I'm not welcome there. You're representing something that does not. You're representing a movement. You're representing a part of history that did not recognize my humanity. So why is that something I would want to do? Right. So there can be an illusion of inclusion just because it's illegal for you to discriminate doesn't mean you can't create an environment or design an environment in which people that, you know, which people who are looking for diversity or people who are of a diverse nature will avoid your establishment, will avoid your organization, will avoid your institution because the design of your institution is not inclusive. Right. The way that your institution looks, it doesn't look like it's it's accepting of or has open doors for black people or minorities in general. Right. Like, you know, I may have to ask my, myself a question like like how does a flag in a church make me feel? Right. A flag represents America. And to some people, that's a proud thing. Right. I'm a. I'm a I'm a Navy veteran. I'm a disabled veteran. Right. I served my country. I pledged um, to protect the, you know, I pledged to uphold and protect the Constitution against enemies, both foreign and domestic. I did that. But I've never I didn't pledge allegiance to a flag in the military. Right. I, I took an oath to uphold the Constitution. So when a, when you put a flag in a church, you're putting America in a building that's supposed to be about Christ. If you're I'm Christian. Everybody know that you heard the song at the beginning of the podcast. Right. So you put a flag up in a church. That's supposed to represent Christ. And you say this is and to me, what you're saying is this in a this is an American Christian church. And to a certain degree, the America is because coming before Christ because you can only serve one master. It's in the Bible. So either you're serving Christ or you're serving America. If you put a flag in a church then I'm going to take the assumption that you are serving America. You are serving, serving American ideology, right? That you, some, for some reason, within the context of your faith, feel it necessary to praise or, or worship <laughs> or even recognize a flag of America. Like, we all know what country we're in. That, that doesn't make any sense to me. It would make sense to me if you had a diverse church and then you had flags in the church for everyone who represents a ethnicity outside of America. I've seen that in racially diverse churches, especially churches um, that have people from various African backgrounds, Caribbean backgrounds. They'll have the flags of all the nations represented within the church. But that's representing all the nations because the gospel should reach all the nations. It's not one big American flag on a pole or hanging on a wall to say this is a church in America. Why do we need to say that? Right. Like, that's how I feel about a church. I feel like if you put a flag up in the church, I think you're saying that you are American Christian. That you care about America and Christ, but you can't do both. <laughs> you either care about Christ, who would have a lot of interesting things. You thought he flipped over a table in the temple and, and um, you know, in, in the old times. What do you think Jesus would do in the church today? What do you think Jesus would do in our White House today, in our Senate, in our legislative bodies, in our local governments? Right. How do you think he would react to the way that they utilize resources and the way that they take money for people and the way that the, the you know, the way that the commerce system manipulates and, um, and, you know, capitalism just takes advantage of people? 
right? I'd see Jesus flipping over tables and cracking whips at the credit card company, that predatory and, and mortgage lenders that do predatory lending. Like, I, like, I don't understand it, right? But again, and, it, and from a cultural context, if you don't know that America projects a certain ideal to minorities who have to deal with the systemic oppression built into the, 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 very, the very clear racist tendencies of America, Right. Like that flag has been used <laughs> to oppress people of color. The ideals of this country were used to oppress, you know, Native Americans. The ideals of America were used to treat an entire ethnic group as less than human. Why do you think that flag means the same thing to me as you? And I'm speaking for me and, you know, in my circle of black people that I know anyway, Right. Like we understand what the flag is like. We un I know what the Delaware state flag is. I know what the Navy flag is. I know what the American flag is, but I don't worship or have any degree of adoration or respect or, you know, I don't put a flag on a pedestal. It's a flag. That's it. It's a symbol of America. That is all. It should be on state buildings. You know, it should be on state buildings and at the airport. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't see the point of it. Like, you know, like America is, is one homogenous group. Every state is different. Every community within a state is different. Like people are different. That flag and that flag doesn't represent our differences. If anything, it represents the division. The fact that we got one flag and thousands of ideologies <laughs> and people can't get along and we still have a lack of racial harmony. You know, they should separate all the stars and put them in different places and then separate all the stars and stripes and make them different colors and then really show how America is. 50 states that are completely divided and then diversities of people that very rarely that run parallel to each other and very rarely interact. So that's a, that's that's what a flag should look like to me. Right. But like, that's how I feel. So if you put that in your church, it's going to make me feel a certain kind of way. But are you thinking about that when you design your church, what the symbols in your church mean to the people who have to look at them? Right. Like, how does a picture of a white Jesus make me feel? When you still got the Leonardo da Vinci's boyfriend portrait up in the lobby of your up in the lobby, like everybody, you can Google it. Everybody knows that is no way, shape or form a depiction of Jesus. But you still have it up in your building because something about Jesus being white makes you feel comfortable. Like get white Jesus out of your churches. He's not. Jesus is not white. Jesus was born in the Middle East. Jesus blended in in Egypt. Have you seen Egyptians? There's a lot of Egyptians that work at, air, at the airport. I don't know why. I don't know if it's just from an immigration thing, but like the Philadelphia airport, I run into a lot of Egyptians and I, I travel a lot. I'm in Chicago right now. I run into a lot of Egyptians at the airport, but they don't look white. They, they don't they don't have long flowing brown hair and blue eyes. You know what I mean? Like they're not like the Bible said Jesus had hair of wool and a skin like bronze. Like Jesus was brown. Take down the why is why are you have you have a lie portrayed <laughs> in your building like. But it makes you feel better. But again, in your interior design, if you got pictures of white saints all over the building, right? If you have pictures of white disciples all over your building, the Last Supper portrait with all of these white men who were also almost all of them were also Middle Eastern brown people. But you got a Last Supper picture with a bunch of white people in it. These people were not white. So what are you saying to people who know that they're not white? But yet you portray them as white. You're saying to them that I think white is right. So I prefer white Jesus. I prefer white disciples and apostles. Like I prefer whitewashed history of, of culture, whitewashed history of religion, whitewashed history of Christianity. 
right? Like, how does the silence of white Christians when racism is so blatantly apparent make me feel, make black people feel? Right. When when there's a when there's a when there's a racially charged shooting. But it's but it's not mentioned condolences or a moment of silence in Sunday service. Right. When when you you know, when when there's been another um, acquittal or a lack of um, pursuing charges against a police officer, when the video clearly shows that, you know, he assaulted or used, um, you know, brute force against somebody who was unarmed or mistaken identities or you know, just the the the, the general <laughs> nature of America, right? Incarceration, the criminal justice system, poverty, unequal education, like all of the stuff that's impacting people on a day-to-day basis, that's impacting some of the people in your church. You know what I'm saying? It might not be the specific people in your church, but their families may be impacted by it. Right. Like when you when you see atrocities happening to black people all across the country, that doesn't make you wonder like how your like how your black friends feel about that. You don't feel like as a you know, as a pastor, you don't you don't want to speak to that pain that you know what I mean, or that anxiety or that fear that your black members may be dealing with, even if you can't relate to it because you don't have to deal with it because you don't you don't have to. You get to live in a country where you have the privilege of being a part of the majority. Right. So like, but that doesn't mean you can't speak to that. You can't empathize with that. You can't, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, you can't address that. The anxiety and fear that you have to have as a minority that if you have a son or a husband, like my wife genuinely has to have anxiety that like I could get pulled over by a police officer and get shot. I'm not a criminal. You know what I mean? Like. I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not a gang banger. It's not like, you know, I'm at the home. I'm at I'm at home packing a bundle and throwing a brick in a backpack. You know what I'm saying? With my with my illegal weapon and going out the house like, baby, I got to go get this guap. I got to go make a pickup at the plug. Yeah, I, I know slang too, people. You know what I'm saying um, I am a rapper. But you know what I mean? Like, that's not all my wife is concerned about. Like, I'm, I'm not a I, I'm not a gang banger. I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not going out to commit a robbery and trying to bring the money back, you know, to the house like. I'm going to work. I'm going to Walmart. I'm driving to the airport. <laughs> I'm going to preach in another state. And my wife has to be genuinely concerned for my safety. You can't speak to that. Like, that's a real tangible thing that we have to deal with. I think that's why I think racism is why most black people have high blood pressure. We always on edge constantly. Like, we always constantly have to worry about it. You know, and it's hard not to deal with. You're always worrying about the way people perceive you. You're, you know, you always have to adjust and assimilate to other people's culture so that so that you're not rejected or excluded. You know what I mean? Like we are required to, you know what I mean? We we are we are required to know what um what the what what normality is in white culture in America. It is a requirement. It's a requirement for you to function in the workplace. It's a requirement in public education. It's a requirement. It's a requirement even in some communities when you have to go to church. Like, I have to know what white people like. I have to know what white people do. I have to know white common interests so I can strike up conversations with other professionals because I'm normally surrounded by like 98% white people. So like for me to be able to maneuver and even appear to be social and not isolated and unapproachable, like I have to learn about white people and white culture um, and just stuff going on in the news that I don't care about. (laughs) 
I don't care about sports. I don't really care about politics, right? I don't I don't care about like, you know, like there's a lot of stuff I don't care about. There's a lot of things going on in communities that directly affect me and people in my family and people that I love and people that I'm called to minister to that I would rather spend time engaging in, right? But even as a professional, like in my job, like I, you know, I work in technology and in automation. So like I have to be knowledgeable of technology. I have to be knowledgeable because I'm in that space. So it's like when you're in when you're in that space, when you're when you're trying to function in that space, you have to be aware of it. But the crazy thing is that for everybody who's not white in America, we're in your space. So we have to learn your culture. We have to learn your ways. We have to assimilate and accommodate your ways because you're the majority and I'm playing in your space. So I have to know and I have to play by your rules. Right. Like when you I mean, when you think about it, you know, it's like, you know, and it's all of this. Like, so what do you do? Like, what's the answer? What's the solution? And it's you know, I don't know. Right. I, I don't I, you know, I have ideas. I have thoughts. Everybody has thoughts. Everybody has opinions. I'm not the first person who's thought about this. There's there's thousands and probably, you know, tens of thousands of books written on this and people continue to look at it. But it's like, I don't know what we're not saying to people where they don't get it. Right. Like and people are like, well, well, you have black churches like we have black churches because we couldn't have church. We, we weren't allowed in white churches. You can't use that as an excuse why your church doesn't have diversity. You can't lock the door on us and get mad when we go build our own building. Because that's what happened. <laughs> you locked the door, told us not to come in, went and built. We went and built our own building. Then the government came back and told you to unlock your door and you unlocked the door and said, hey, you guys can come back. We had already built our own building. You can't just unlock the door and say, come back. You got to unlock the door, leave your building, come to our building and show you really mean it. Right. You, you, you want to start some integration and start walking into black churches, start inviting black pastors to preach at your churches, doing pulpit swaps. Right. Start attending the fellowship in the um, in the community events thrown by black churches, because the reason they exist is because you locked your door until the government told you it was wrong. So don't look at them like, well, we're here. Our doors open. They should come. But your door wasn't always open. And the reason they had to go make their own door, the reason they had to go build their own building is because your door was locked. So now it's your responsibility to walk out of your door and go over there, right? It's like if I have a neighbor and the first time my neighbor came to speak to me, right? If I moved into my house and my neighbor did, you know, the American television sitcom thing of coming over and bringing me muffins. And when my neighbor came to bring me muffins, my door was locked. But you can see me through the glass storm door that I have. And I'm and so, you know, I'm home, you know, I'm here and I'm just looking at you like, mm, no, thank you. I don't want you here. How do you think that impacts my relationship with my neighbor? Do you would, would you really expect my neighbor to come over again after I have an epiphany right after my wife <laughs> tells me I was being rude to my neighbor and I need to be more social right after an external force compels me to change my opinion? It would be my responsibility to then go to my neighbor's house and apologize for the position of my heart when they approached me the first time. It would be my my responsibility to go to my neighbor's house and now bring them a muffin since they all, or, you know, since they originally extended an offer of grace and fellowship to me. It's my responsibility since I did them wrong to repent. Right. Not to just ask for forgiveness and say, hey, by the way, I'm sorry that I ignored you that time and, you know, and, and didn't want you to come into my house. Can't just say that. 
I have to change my mindset and then I have to take the initiative to change my direction. If my direction was to allow you to be isolated and separate from me, then I should change my mindset, repent, turn away from isolation and separation and then be deliberate about integration and inclusion. Because, again, the illusion of inclusion is me saying I'm sorry, but not going to get the people that I previously cast out, not going to connect to the people that I previously denied access not going and being intentional and showing that I haven't just said sorry because someone else smacked my hand, that I genuinely have a change of heart, that I have a, that I genuinely have a change of mentality and I want to be different. I want you to see that I'm different. I want you to help me with the design of my church. I want you to help me um, be more involved in the community. I want you to help me understand diversity. I want you to help me understand um, ethnic differences and social differences. Right. Come into my church and tell me what makes black people feel uncomfortable here. Right. Because it's funny. You have the same thing when you're white and you go to an all black church. There's things in that church that make you feel uncomfortable. Right. Like it, it exists. So I don't know why people like if you walk into a Korean church, there's stuff in that church that makes you feel uncomfortable. So why don't we think why, why do we act like that doesn't exist when it when it happens in the reverse? When people go to an all white church, people go to an all black church, an all Korean church, an all African church or whatever. Right. There are cultural differences and, and, you know, and different things like that. But at the end of the day, we if you follow the same God, <laughs> we are commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are commanded to love one another. We are commanded to serve one another. We should be serving people in our community. We should be loving people in our community. And we should definitely be worshiping with people in our community that hold the same faith values that we do. Right. Churches are some of the largest owners of real estate, but it's because we none of us can get along. So we got to buy so many buildings so that we can all sit in our denominationally racially segregated churches on Sunday and, you know, not not go about following God's commands. Right. Like the black church was created out of a necessity. So, like, unless you eliminate that necessity, it will continue to exist. Right. As long as we feel excluded, underrepresented, you know, you're not speaking to our issues. Um, you, you're not contextualizing systemic race issues in, in the majority of churches through the lens of the gospel. Right. Like if you don't contextualize social issues through the lens of the gospel. Right. Segregation and all of this other stuff like we will not see an evolution of the heart centered. You know, I mean, we won't see a heart centered racial change in our in our society, in America. Right. Like religion teaches us and models the behavior that that leads to eternal rewards or eternal punishments. Right. So what is emphasized in the church has an eternal consequence. If you go back to the first episode, um, the first full episode where I talked about racism and love, it's about who you love, not who you hate. Right. You will know, like you know that I feel like racism is a sin. Right. Because, you know, sin, you know, by definition, you know, sin is to miss a target. Right. Jesus gave us a target. He he boiled the Ten Commandments down into two. He said, love God. Right. And then love your neighbor as yourself. So that's 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 a directive from Jesus. Right. And the distilling down the Ten Commandments. So taking Old Testament, God, Ten Commandments. Right. How to function with, you know, how to have a relationship with God and how to function within community. Ten Commandments to Jesus. Two commandments, right? Because your Ten Commandments, six and four, and Jesus goes to the two commandments and says, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. So to disregard those commandments is to miss a target established by Jesus previously, you know, uh, you know, reiterated by Jesus, established by God, right? 
So it's you're disobeying Jesus by not loving your neighbor as yourself. So you're missing a target. So that is sin. Right. If the church is failing to preach on racial reconciliation, right, if the church isn't really striving towards true diversity and inclusion by factoring in racial, ethnic and social differences into the design of their church. Right. You're failing to truly preach the gospel. Right. Like, you know, we, we you know, the Bible says that you can't have like salt and fresh water come from the same spring. So I'm going to say you can't have love and hate come from the same spring. You can't have compassion and indifference come from the same spring. You can't have charity and apathy come from the same spring. We can't claim to be Christ-like when sitting in a cultural vacuum, sowing whitewashed seeds that promote the great American ideology and not true Christian ethics. America is not Christian. It's America. Right. Nations have tried to be religious in structure. Right. That's what led to people leaving Europe to come to America, because, you know, the the Roman Catholic Church was turning states into religious institutions that didn't work. So people came to America seeking religious freedom, which is why it's in the first amendment of the Constitution. Right. We the people came here seeking religious freedom. People came here seeking to not be dictated to by the government, but to have the freedom to truly pursue God the way that you desire, right? Not, not to have, you know, not to have morality legislated, not to have, you know, not to have your faith be something that's mandated by the government, right? For your relationship with God to be what drives your behavior and drives your decisions. And I'm taking the position that if you read the Bible, if you ascribe to being a Christian, if you read the Bible, it should make you repent from racist behavior. It should make you repent from racist ideology. It should make you drive for diversity and inclusion. It should make you design your churches, your institutions, your organizations, and your communities. And that, I mean, in the first part of the community is your home, right? It should drive things to be receptive to diversity. Do you really think you're, you, you want, you talk about inclusion, inclusion and diversity, but like how many, how many, how many people of a different race have your children seen you have genuine relationships with? How many people have been over to your house for dinner and have been invited to your intimate family celebrations that are from a different culture than you, that are a different ethnicity than you, that aren't a requirement? I'm not talking about your sister's black boyfriend who has to come because your sister comes. But like how many people in your circle, like when you step outside of your coworkers, that most of us have work, those are work friends, work relationships with that you may invite to a birthday party, right? But like, you know what I mean? Like as a, as a parent, like are, they, are there people that you genuinely depend on? Are there people that you have real strong, um, you know, like lasting, loving relationships outside of occupation that are different than you? Right. Like, do you do you have do you have white friends, you know, that that you genuinely love, that your families go on vacations together, that your children see you engaging and showing love to somebody that looks different than you. Right. Do you have black friends that, you know, that that you that you go to or who come to you to to vent about their frustrations with things that they have to deal with, 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 with other white folks, right? That they can come and vent to you with the frustration for the fear that they have to feel with their for their son who's about to get his driver's license. Right. Do we have genuine relationships or do we all sit in vacuums? Right. Do we do, you know, do, you know, for me as a black person, like you have that tendency to kind of curl 
back into a ball and to just avoid all of the whitewashed religiosity and theology and the American Christianity that ignores the pain of my identity. I mean, not my identity, that ignores the pain of the, my racial classification in this country. Right. It's hard to continue to put on a smile every day and to go, you know, and to and to go about my day like I don't know that people who look like me are being mistreated and don't and don't have the representation, right? That people are not being afforded opportunities because of the color of their skin, that people are being profiled daily, pulled over, assaulted, illegally detained, having their constitutional rights violated, serving unjust criminal sentences. Like all of this stuff happens every day. It's happening to people that I know. It's happened to people that I love. It's happening to people in my family. But yet I'm expected to just be like, hey, everything's good today. Like, it may be good for you. And I don't want me, you know, and a lot of times I'm trying to be nice. I don't want my reality to burden you. But my reality should burden you. The reality that you don't have to worry about how people are going to treat your children when, you, when they grow up because they're white should bother you. Right. If we both have three year old sons and you know that you're never going to have to have the conversation with your son about how to interact with the police, about how to deal with security at the mall, about how to respond to people who treat you a certain way because of what you look like. Like if you know you don't have to have a conversation that I have to have with my children, but you consider me to be a friend, you consider me to be a brother, then that should bother you. It should burden you. And then you sharing that burden with me. Right. And then we, we figure out ways to have communication. We figure out ways to have that under, you know, to, to have that understanding. Like one of the things that helps me contextualize all of this stuff and that gives me hope that as a country we can be unified, that people of faith can be unified is because I genuinely know some people who care. But the weird thing is, I know more people who care about atrocities happening um, in black communities that don't consider themselves to be Christian, um, that that are that are agnostic, that that will show more genuine concern and contempt for systemic racism in America than I can get Christians to admit, especially evangelical Christians. Right. Because evangelicals are like, well, we just preach the gospel and everybody will change. We've been preaching the gospel in America since they were bringing people over on slave ships and leaving out parts of the gospel that express freedom <laughs> and the fact that we're all made in the image of God. There was a slave Bible. Right. The preaching of the gospel has never been absent in America. But the preaching of the gospel through the context that everybody is created in the image of God, the preaching of the gospel through the context that all that that black lives matter, that brown lives matter, that all lives truly matter, including the color of those lives and the response. Right. And the response, the equitable response to what happens from a from a criminal justice perspective when someone's life is lost. Right. The, the, the gospel should be getting contextualized in the fact that we're supposed to genuinely love one another, that we're supposed to love our neighbors. Right. The gospel should be contextualized that people of all nations and of every tongue should be worshiping the same God. That's how the gospel should be contextualized. It shouldn't be compartmentalized. Right. And broken down to just address the issues that 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 face the majority of the congregation. 
right? It shouldn't just be it shouldn't just be tampered on how we deal with issues at work and how we deal with bosses that don't appreciate our effort and how we deal with financial decisions because we you know how we deal with money crises because we make poor financial decisions or how we raise our children because social media is so out of hand and you know they're, the devil's creeping in through every Snapchat. Like, yeah, those things are important, but there is a cancer in this country that has existed for hundreds of years. Snapchat is new. Instagram is new. Facebook is new. We started preaching against Facebook. Now your kids don't even use Facebook. Then you started preaching against Instagram. They don't even use Instagram. Then you start preaching against Snapchat. You know, now they're on Tumblr, whatever else. They got Al Jazeera, all these other crazy apps that they can use that are hidden and secret and look like calculators. Like, all of those things continue to evolve. Technology continues to evolve. Social structure continues to evolve. But it's funny that racism has, re- has remained relatively consistent because we don't attack it. We don't address it. We don't talk about it. We don't talk about it like it's sin. We don't talk about it like it's something that needs to be removed. We just unlock the doors. We remove the signs. We say, you're all welcome, but come into my world. Assimilate to my culture. I'm not here to make you comfortable. I'm not here to make you feel included. I'm not here to address your issues. I'm not really here to treat you as family because I care about the issues that impact, impact everybody in my family. I said it on one of the, you know, I think on one of the Facebook posts. If I have somebody in my family or somebody I love who's disabled, now I care, you know, when I'm in a store and I look around, I remember being in Foreman Mills up in Wilmington, Delaware and looking around, and I'm just like, man, there's nowhere for a wheelchair to get around in here. They really need to space these aisles out. This is because I love somebody who's in a wheelchair. She goes to my church. Like, <laughs> now I think about it. I never had to think about that before. At the most, I was thinking about the distance of aisles because I got to push a stroller through it. But even that, about the same distance, right? Like, you don't, but when you, when you don't have kids, you don't, you're not looking around like, where can you get a stroller? You don't care. You don't have kids. It's not a concern to you looking at how, can I get my shopping cart through here? Can I walk over to grab something and come back to my shopping cart? But when you care about people who are different than you, when you genuinely love other people like yourself, then that means the way that the world interacts with them is how the world interacts with you. If you love me as yourself, then you would be worried about how police treat me because it's essentially how police treat you. If you were worried, if you loved me like you loved yourself, then you would be worried about, you know, you would be considering like how the Confederate flag makes me feel because it should be the way it makes you feel. You should care. Because that's what Christ said. It's not what I said. It's what Christ said. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. So do it. Right. Inclusion is an illusion. Access is an illusion if it's not incorporated into the design. Right. You have to design your churches. You have to be intentional about integration and you have to go out and you have to apologize, white America, to the fact that black America had to establish its own religious structure because not you, but your grandparents and your great grandparents said we weren't invited. So, no, you didn't do it. You weren't personally involved. You didn't lock the door. But you're in the building that had the door locked that required me to go build my own building. So that's why we're not that close as neighbors. Because when my great grandparents brought muffins and biscuits to the church picnic, they were told they weren't allowed. 
So they took their muffins and well, actually, they took the muffins and the biscuits because everybody assimilated our, our eating culture and took our food. But so they ate the, the muffins and the biscuits and then told us we weren't allowed. Or we had to sit in the back in the section like outside the church and we could hear the sermon, but we couldn't see the people preaching. Right. So we left. I mean, study the, 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 um, the, the African, um, the, the AME church, African Methodist Episcopal church, like study it. They were going to church. They were going to white churches and then a heathen group of people that just found the Bible and started their own religion. They just got tired of being treated differently. They wanted to be spoken to. They wanted to be respected. They wanted to be identified. They wanted to be included. Legislation doesn't change morality. If it was, racism wouldn't exist today because racism was deemed to be unconstitutional. Discrimination was deemed to be unconstitutional. Segregation was deemed to be unconstitutional. Yet our churches are still segregated. Yet I still experience discrimination on a regular basis. I still deal with racism and people aren't going to jail for it. Right. Hate crimes only really became a thing and are really they largely get um, prosecuted because of crimes against the LGBTQ plus community. Right. They're I mean, very rarely used in the context of racial, you know, ra racial hate crimes, especially when you talk about like murder. But there's there are hate groups. It is 2019 and the Klan still exists. There are hate groups in 2019 with stated objectives about hating other races. But we don't talk about that as Christians. We don't speak against that as Christians. Why don't Christians protest at Klan rallies? Shouldn't Christians just show up to Klan rallies with signs that say, love your neighbor? Because some of the people that go to your church are at the Klan rally. So should you go protest it? <laughs> We, we, we will protest Planned Parenthood, but we'll let the Klan organize because it's their right. First Amendment, they got the right to speak. That, that don't make it Christ-like. Shouldn't you stand against things that aren't Christ-like? Now I'm just ranting. So um, the gospel should be, the gospel has the power to change the hearts of men. But as teachers and preachers of God's word who contextualize, um, who contextualize the gospel and, and, and create messages and, and exegete the scripture to deliver, um, to deliver sermons to people um, in ways that, you know, that, that promote and that create lessons that apply um, to, our, to our current times and to the modern day. Like we need to use the gospel to, to we need to use the gospel to, to penetrate the hearts of people so that we really can deal with racism in this country, so that we really can strive for inclusion and diversity, so that we can really strive to love our neighbor that looks different than us, that even believes different than us. Right. Because, you know, even, the, you know, the Bible says that, like the way that you the way that you behave as the disciples and the, as disciples and the way that you love one another is what. You know, the way you love one another is what make people know that make people know that you're a disciple. So Jesus said, they will know you follow me by the way you love people. <clears throat> I'm summarizing, you know, it's not a quote. You can look it up. You have the Google. I like to encourage people to do things so you can read that in the Bible. Um, you know. Sorry, it's just it is still four o'clock in the morning, so um and I'll edit this after the fact and delete most of the stuff anyway. So, I mean, just in closing, 
read again. I want to say that the gospel has power to transform lives. The gospel has the power to transform hearts, but we need to speak to the hardened parts of American hearts that ignore and turn a blind eye to the racism that still exists and is a barrier to true diversity. It's a barrier to people of all nations and tongues coming together, celebrating one God. And the house divided against itself will not stand. So as long as we continue to allow race to divide the church in America, especially the Christian church in America, you will continue to see a decline in Christianity. You will continue to see a decline in people who associate with religion. You will continue to see a decline in people who believe in a God that continues to perpetuate systems that are that are inherently racist and don't appreciate the humanity of every person. You're going to continue to see it go down. Because even even God said it, the way we love people is what will let them know you are my disciples. But we're not loving people right. So people don't see any disciples. People want to be disciple. Look at however, how many people buy self-help tapes and go to motivational speak, um, speeches. People want to be disciple. People want to have something to strive towards. But the way that we represent Christianity, right, with the with the whitewashed seeds of American folklore and ideology is not attractive to people anymore to new generations that 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 experience true diversion and inclusion they go to church and they don't see the people in their circle represented so then they leave the church right when you you see these very undiverse churches when the kids graduate leave high school and and go out and go to college in a diverse area and start meeting people um meeting other Christians and people of the faith that you know that believe and love God as well and then you remember like man at my church we never talked about anything that impacted them. it causes them to leave the church especially the denomination that they grew up in because when you experience true diversity when you start to have love for people who are different than you when it's not addressed in your church it makes you want to leave your church. So if you're wondering why people are leaving, if you're wondering why you can't achieve diversity, maybe because the people who are for diversity in your church don't see diversity in your church. So they leave. Right. And I'm even talking about white people. So like if you're in a white church and you're wondering why diversity isn't being achieved and you got people leaving, and your congregation is shrinking. There's a possibility that the white people in your church who are for inclusion and who are for diversity don't see diversity built into the design of your church. So they leave to go find one. And when you have black people who come and visit and fellowship, they don't see diversity designed into the function of your church. So they also leave. So the people who continue to come and even any organic growth that you have are people who are comfortable with a church that's designed with no intentional diversity, with no intentional, um, you know, with no intentional purpose around integration. But you can still sit there and say you're open to diversity and you want people of different colors to come. But it just it never happens. But it doesn't happen because your inclusion is an illusion. If it's not factored into the design of your church, then you don't really want to do it. That's like saying you want to take collections and you ain't got a plate and the bank has no bank account. Like, oh, we're going to take we're going to take debit card payments in the back and you you just got a piece of paper and a pad. You don't even have anybody to process an ACH transaction. Churches have evolved their design so many times over the years. Right. We went from everybody reading um, hymnals and Bibles that were in the pews to everybody sitting in folding chairs or some other kind of portable mobile um, chair or connecting interconnecting chair system. And now we project the words to the songs on projectors 
and screens, right? And we use digital electronics. We use digital sound equipment and we use web apps and we use, you know, we use uh, video learning and training. The church has evolved in the way that it educates, the way that it entertains, the way that it communicates. But the church is not evolving in the way that it treats diversity. The church has changed its design in every way. Now, everybody's got pop-up signs and cafes and everything else in their church. But the church has not changed their design to be inclusive to all nations in the majority of places. There are churches who are doing it successfully, but they're a minority. The churches who are in communities, the churches who are who have been in communities for years, um, even some of the churches who are establishing themselves in the community are not addressing the needs of a diverse population. They design their church for a demographic. Right. And that demographic could be an age, could be an economic group, could be a um, could be a, a family structure. But there so you can you can design a church that accommodates, you know, millennials, you know, millennials and young married couples between 28 and 35. And you can do that and you'll attract millennials between 28 and 35. But like in that, like there is diversity within millennials. Like, are you still making sure that your church is going to address the needs of a is it is it being built into your design right not just to be aesthetically attractive to millennials not to be programmatically attractive to millennials but is it built into your design to actually address issues of diversity with millennials because for some reason we still like even within millennials right when we look at the when we look at some of the shootings recently like these people are not in their 60s right the resurgence of the white supremacy movement and the all right movement is being done by early Gen Xers and millennials. These are not baby boomers and traditionalists promoting this. It's their grandchildren. So there is a problem we still need to address. We need to put it into the design of how we choose to preach and spread the gospel. If it's not in the design, then it is then you are not intentional about it. And your discussion about diversity, your your mission statements about inclusion are illusions and you're really not working toward it. So thank you for joining us. Um, as I always say, I hope that if you don't know Christ, you find him. Um, the gospel is a transformative thing. The gospel is a freeing thing. The gospel is, is, is just everything to me. Um, and, and what I believe and how I behave and what I do. And I will continue to address issues of race, address issues of whatever issue God puts on my heart through the context of that. Because above all, I am a Christian, but I am also a part of and, you know, and have the experiences of black culture. So I'm going to speak to that context to make sure that people understand it. And hopefully I say it in a way where people get something um, that they may have previously missed or something that they just need clarity on. And, um, and if you have any questions, if you want to have any other discussions with it, please feel free to visit the website, Roy Dockery, www.roydockery.org. Um, feel free to contact us. Um, you know, we you know, we are open to, um, to to speak about this subject in any context and in any manner, um, because we really need to do something about it. It, it impacts our communities in a real way and it needs to change. Um, I hope that heart change occurs um, through the, the experience of the gospel and through the, the teaching of God's word. Um, but we'll continue to spread the message by any means necessary. So this is a savage truth with Pastor Roy Dockery. Thank you for joining me. Um, I hope you have a blessed day. Thank you for your support. Please share. Please subscribe. All of the stuff that people do on social media um, to continue to spread the message. So it's time to be loud but humble because people need to hear the truth. God bless you.
I am, I just tell them I'm a Christian. Occupation, a description, I just tell them I'm a Christian. Nationality, ethnicity, I tell them I'm a Christian. Keep the hyphens in division, I just tell them I'm a Christian. Christian.